maybe you could identify with me on this. Maybe you can relate. Have you ever walked into a situation and uh, had some preconceived notions about how it was going to go? Did you ever walk into a situation, maybe you had an image in your head about how a conversation was going to go or a trip or some sort of hangout? Man, when I was uh, 15 years old, uh, I took a trip with my family to Disney World in Florida. My parents, my brother, uh, my aunt and uncle, and some cousins. And man, I, and I know this is going to upset some Disney fanatics in the room, was not very excited to go to Disney. And the reason is because as a 15-year-old kid, I thought that Disney was just for little kids. Like, I went as a kid, and uh, I thought you go, you meet the characters, you eat Mickey Mouse-shaped uh, pancakes, and uh, you ride the teacups, and that's it, and you go home. And man, I ate those words. Like, I went to Disney, and I had a blast. Like, me and my cousins and my brother were running around, the spectacle, man, the rides, the food was amazing, and uh, man, I still, like, I want to go back to Disney now. Like, I want to take out another student loan this way I could build my own lightsaber. Like, I would love to go back to Disney, and I remember leaving that trip and really regretting the preconceived notions that I walked in there, really regretting the image I had. I really had wished that I would have let Disney speak for itself. And the reason I bring this up today is because I think we do the same thing in our relationship with God. Like, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think we all have these preconceived notions about God. We all have this kind of image in our head about what God is like and what his character is. And, um, man, we, we walk around with these notions that are from our feelings or from what other people tell us. And in actuality, uh, we have not let God define himself. And this is like, this is a big problem. Like, we make God in our own image. And have you noticed in our culture, like, if you talk to somebody about God, maybe at work or at school or uh, in your neighborhood, you talk to someone about God, and they're like, man, I feel like God is like this, or, or I really think God would or wouldn't do blank, and I hate to break it to you, but that's not really how it works. Like, God isn't defined by how you think or what you feel. And if you uh, have any issues, you can email Doug Jansen at Living Word. Um, <laughs> But, but I know it sounds rough, and I don't want you to think I'm, I'm coming at you, but that's really not how it goes. Like, some things in life are just self-evident. I don't get to walk up to a tree and call that tree a golden retriever. That would land me in a mental institution. Like, I don't get to do that. There are things that are self-evident, and God is one of those things. He has defined himself for us. And if we keep doing this, if we let this kind of culture invade the church where we uh, kind of dream up this God, we think up this God in our own head, and he's completely different from what the Bible looks like, I don't even really know what we're doing here. Like, if the God in your head is different than the God in the pages of Scripture, then why would you come to church? Why would you worship? Why would you try and serve him? Uh, you were better off just serving the God that you thought up in your head. And so I really think what we need to do is reorient ourselves around how God has defined himself. Which, by the way, I see this play out in culture a number of different ways. One of the ways I see it play out is how uh, there is a new lack of respect and reverence for God. Like, I don't know if you've noticed this. God has become more like a, a buddy or a pal who you keep on the back burner and not like a father or a king or someone who deserves your respect. And I don't know if you've noticed, like, there's been this flip of right and wrong, and every few years it's kind of just flip-flopping back and forth. Things that are called right in the Bible are called wrong now in culture. Things that are called wrong in the Bible are called right now in culture. And, and I think it's because we have made this image of God in our minds, and so now we have oriented ourselves around that image not the God of the Bible. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm really glad that you're here because 
I think you also have an image of God in your mind. Maybe you don't even believe in God, which let me tell you, that is an image of God in your mind. But, but maybe you have been told a thousand different things about God. Maybe you've been told from different Christians in different denominations, from different churches, really conflicting things about who God is. And maybe you've heard from world religions about who God is. And then you see in the media and on TV and in movies, and then there's your feelings telling you different things about who you think and who you feel God is. And chances are uh, you have walked in here today with a really conflicting, really inaccurate view of God in your head. And I'm not coming at you because that's not your fault. Like you have been told things that are just not true about God. And so what I want to do today, uh, Christians and non-Christians, is I want to let God speak for himself, let him define himself, and then I want us to talk about how we can respond to who God is. So today, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, and that's the second book of the Bible. Some of you didn't know that. Some of you thought it was called Exorcist. That's all right. We love you. And Exodus is one of the most theologically important books in the Bible. Actually, in my opinion, it's the most theologically important book in the Old Testament. And the reason I say that is because it reveals so much about who God is. You may uh, be wondering why. Like, why is this book so important? Maybe you read through your Bible in a year plan, you're going strong with that, and you got to the book of Exodus, and you were like, sweet, I'm going to read through some of the stories that I remember from Sunday school. I'm going to read about uh, God parting the Red Sea and taking the Israelites out of Egypt. And you read the first 15 chapters, and you were like, man, that was good. And then you were ready to start the next book until you realized there were another 15 chapters that are all law and a DIY tabernacle instruction manual. And you were like, why is this guy on stage telling me that this book is so important? And the reason it's so important is because God reveals things about himself in Exodus that will course through the veins of Scripture till the end. Man, God reveals things about himself that are foundational to what we learn about God, what we learn about man, what we learn about everything in the Scripture. The foundation of that really comes from some of the stuff that God reveals in Exodus. And one of the things that I want to talk about today that he reveals is how he is both transcendent and imminent. And I know those are big and confusing words, so we're going to break them down. We're going to simplify them. God is transcendent, and the definition of transcendence is being beyond or above the range of normal or merely physical human experience. So you can think about it as God being high above us. God is set apart. God is holy. Like, if I could put this in one word, it would be God's bigness. Like, God is big. That's God's transcendence. And then we have imminence, and the definition of being imminent is being uh, within the limits of possible experience or knowledge. And you could say that this is God's, he's being deeply involved. He's fully present in our lives. He's with us. Like, you could call this God's closeness. So we have God's bigness and God's closeness. And at first, these definitions might sound a little contradictory. Like, how can something be beyond or above the range of normal experience, yet within the limits of the experience? And we're going to explore how these two things work together, and that really, you wouldn't want it any other way. So we got bigness, we got closeness, we got transcendence, high above us, beyond us, holy, powerful, and imminence, deeply involved, present with us. So we're going to be in Exodus 3 today, and if you grew up in church, uh, you're probably familiar with some of the events in this story. Even if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you've heard it, if you saw the Disney movie Prince of Egypt, 
Uh, maybe you're familiar with some of these events. Prince of Egypt, really fun movie with a lot of biblical inaccuracies, but I won't go there. I'm not going to ruin your childhood today. And then you also have, if you want to go a little bit more old school, the Ten Commandments, which my mom loves the Ten Commandments. It's always on in Easter time in my house. And uh, you are somewhat familiar with these uh, verses that we're going to read today. God uh, encountering Moses at the burning bush. And so uh, before we get there, I want us to back up a little bit so we can know where we're coming from. It's only Exodus 3, but a lot has happened. It's kind of like jumping into the middle of a Stranger Things uh, season. You're like, I don't know who are these kids, where's everyone's parents, I don't know what upside down means. Like, but we're going to back up, and we're going we're gonna to get there. So the book of Genesis ends, and uh, the sons of Israel are living in Egypt. So what happened is... Uh, Joseph, who was one of Israel's sons, uh, is a governor ruler in Egypt, and the Egyptians love him. And so his brothers go there, and they all kind of take up residence there. And the book of Genesis ends with Joseph's death and the rest of his brothers being like, all right, I guess we'll just chill here. And they kind of raise their families, and that's how the book ends. And then we have uh, Exodus open 400 years later. And uh, no one remembers this Joseph guy, no one remembers this Israel guy, and the nation of Israel is no longer a few brothers who are living together, it is a nation within a nation. Like they have grown exponentially, and they have become a nation within a nation, and instead of being welcomed guests like they were at the end of Genesis, they are now abused slaves. They have been put to work by the Egyptians, and they have been abused by the Egyptians, and uh, throughout all of this, the uh, Israelites are growing and growing. And so um, the Pharaoh, the Egyptian Pharaoh, uh, has his plan. He's kind of afraid of some uprising. And so he's like, I am going to kill all the newborn infant males. Uh, this way, there will be kind of some population control going on. And as fate would have it, that's when Moses is born. And so Moses is born and this decree comes down. So Moses' mother is like, I'm going to put him in a basket and send him down the river like you do. You just kind of send the baby down. And uh, as luck would have it, he is picked up by the Egyptian princess, Pharaoh's daughter. This is great. So he is um, adopted into Pharaoh's household. He lives that lavish life of luxury, man. Like he is, he is rolling in it. He is not working a day in his life. And the first 40 years of his life are good. And man, one day he is walking outside and he sees an Egyptian abusing an Israelite. And Moses uh, knew he was adopted and so he knew that was one of his people. And out of anger, he kills the Egyptian. And uh, he hides the body, tries to get away with it, but he ends up being found out and out of fear, he runs into the wilderness where he meets a dude named Jethro, my man Jethro. And Jethro had some goats and so he kind of fills out a job application and starts tending to the goats and he marries Jethro's daughter and that's the next 40 years of Moses' life is hanging out with Jethro and the goats. And I know, it sounds exciting, right? And um, throughout all of this, God has not spoken a word. Like from the end of Genesis in those hundreds of years and then even the first two chapters of Exodus, God has not spoken. We see him pulling the strings. Like you don't just send your baby down a river and they get picked up by the Egyptian princess without thinking that God is pulling the strings a little bit. But it's in Exodus 3 that we see God burst onto the scene and finally for the first time in hundreds of years speak to his people. And so let's pick up in Exodus 3 verse 1. Now, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. 
And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside and see the marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the fire and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And I want you to imagine for just a second that you have been spending the last 40 years of your life with a bunch of goats. Like, this is not fun. Like, so when Moses sees a bush on fire, his two options are, I'm either going to go check out this book or see what Chompy's chewing on over there. And so he's like, I'm going to go check out this fire because that's my only form of entertainment today. And he goes and he sees that the bush, even though it was on fire, was not burned up. And I thought about setting something on fire today, but I figured that wouldn't be a very good illustration. But if I took a piece of uh, paper and set it on fire, what would happen? It would burn and eventually it would do this kind of thing that fire does and uh, it would shrivel up into nothing. And what the what scripture is saying is that the bush was on fire, but it didn't do that thing. It didn't really burn up. And so Moses is like, I got to check this out. And he goes up. And I find it so interesting that God chooses to enter the story through fire. And the reason I think this is really important is because fire is one of the only things throughout human history, throughout human culture, throughout all different countries, cultures, times, that is both simultaneously inviting yet terrifying. Like, think about it. We love fire. We gather around fire. We tell stories around fires. We've had worship nights around fire. We have a place in our houses for fire called a fire place. We like fire. But at the same time, fire is terrifying. We have seen it burn houses to the ground, ravage cities. We protect our kids from it. We make sure we're safe in the way that we put it out. It's both inviting yet terrifying. And I think it's funny and I think it's cool because God is both inviting. He is both with us intimate. He is inviting, yet he is also big and powerful. And in some ways a little terrifying because of how big and powerful he is. So it makes perfect sense to me that God would choose fire. The only other thing that I can think of that's both powerful and terrifying yet inviting to introduce the God who is both powerful and in some ways terrifying yet inviting and loving and close. And so Moses goes to see what's up, and God's like, hey, don't come any closer. you got to take your sandals off, bro. And the reason that he has to take his sandals off is because God has entered this space, and what was once just a regular old mountain has now become holy ground. It wasn't holy before this. But God has entered a space, and when the Holy One, when the Holy One of Israel enters a space, when it comes into a room, that place is now holy. And so Moses was not holy because he was human, and so he had to take off his sandals. But what I want you to think for a second is if this was all holiness, if this was all transcendence and all power and bigness, then Moses couldn't even be there. Like, the response wouldn't be, take your sandals off. The response would be, hey, get far away from here because I'm holy and you're not, so you can't be near me. But that's not what God does. God says, hey, even though I'm holy, take your sandals off and and come in. And it's because while God is holy, while he is transcendent, he is also 
Amen. He doesn't just cast Moses aside. He brings him in. He invites him in. God is simultaneously too holy for us to be around, but he cares too deeply about us to let that get in his way. God is both holy yet inviting. And so he introduces himself as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he's basically saying, I am the God of your ancestors. Those stories you heard, yeah, they're about me. They're true. And so he keeps going in verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up to, from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel have come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppressions with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And I want you to notice right off the bat, God says, I have seen the affliction of my people. This is God's imminence on display. This is God's closeness on display that this big, powerful, holy God would see the affliction of his people and care. Care enough to do something about it. And there's someone here, and I really believe that there's someone here today who is battling something. You are in the midst of the affliction, man. You are battling addiction. You are battling depression. You are battling anxiety. And you just want to know, does anybody see me today? Like, do my family see what I'm going through? Do my friends know what I'm going through? And what I want you to hear from me today is that there is a God who sees you, but he doesn't just see you. Like, look at what he says to Moses a few verses later. He says, I will be with you. And this is not just some promise to Moses. This is God's character on display. God is the God who sees us and is with us through the affliction and on the other side. God sees you and he's with you. And this should bring you comfort and peace without getting too ahead of myself. So God kind of starts making some big promises to Moses. And Moses is kind of having a hard time trusting him. He's like, you know, struggling. Uh, do I say yes to God? Do I really do this? Like, who am I to go to Pharaoh? And if you remember, God introed himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And one of the reasons that he did this was to kind of cite his own work. Like, we all knew this kid. We all knew this kid in high school who just bragged about their GPA all the time. And the funny thing about the kid who brags about his GPA is he doesn't have a 1.7 GPA. Like, nobody brags about a 1.7. The kid who brags about their GPA has the 4.0, and God is the 4.0 God. So when he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he's like, hey, I kept my promises to those guys, and I'm going to keep my promise to you. So when he makes prom, a crazy promise like leaving Egypt from the power of the most mighty empire the world had seen to this point, he means it and he keeps it. And when he makes crazy promises to you and me, he means them and he keeps them because he's the God who keeps his promises. And this is where I really feel like the rubber meets the road of this transcendence imminence thing. It's like this is why this matters. I want you to think 
about it through that framework. God cares enough to make promises to you, and he's powerful enough to keep them. Like, God is close, he is intimate, he cares enough to make promises, yet he is holy and powerful enough to keep them. One would not be enough. He is driven by his imminence to make you promises, and he is driven by his transcendence to keep them. God is both promise maker and promise keeper. So let's keep going to verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What's his name? And what should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and my memorial name to all generations. And maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've heard this whole I am who I am thing and you've just kind of chalked it. Oh, there goes God being God again. Like just being confusing and not really answering the question. But what I actually think is that this is the centerpiece to the passage today. Like what we are looking at, the things that we are looking at today. This is the central idea. This little exchange between God and Moses makes all the difference for us today. And so there are three things that this I am thing kind of reveals to us. And so I want to break those down for you. The first thing that we see is a little bit of word play. And what happened is, if you remember a few verses back, uh, Moses says to God, Hey, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God's answer to that comes in these verses when he says, I am who I am. And he answers his question by saying, Hey, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. When I send you to do something, I'm not sending you based on your qualifications. I'm not sending you based on your power. I'm not sending you based on your abilities. It's based on mine. I will be behind you and in front of you and on both sides of you. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. And then the second thing that I see here is this kind of circular thing that God has going on with the I am who I am. Uh, if you kind of think about it, God... I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, has not been created by anybody. God exists in and of himself. So if you think about it, I could say to you, if you asked me, what's your name? And we lived in old England. I could say, I am Joseph, son of Salvatore. But if you asked God that question, he would not be able to answer it that way because nobody created him. He is the uncreated one from whom all things have been created. So he kind of says, I am because I am. Like, I'm just, I'm God. So, so uh, there's this kind of circular thing going around because there's no one above him. There's no one who came before him. He is because he is. And this, uh, at this point, sounds a whole lot like transcendence and not a whole lot of imminence, right? Like, there's a whole lot of bigness, a whole lot of holiness and power going on, but there's not a whole lot of closeness. And that's the third thing that I want us to see. I'm going to try really hard not to bore you because we're going to do just a tiny bit of Hebrew today. And so uh, the words I am in the Bible uh, are the Hebrew word, is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which whenever you see uh, L-O-R-D, Lord, in all caps in your Bible, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And this is a, com uh, a somewhat perplexing word to Hebrew scholars. It's called the Tetragrammaton, which is just fun to say. That's why I brought it up. And um, it is a somewhat perplexing word because we don't really know the etymology of it. We don't know the origin, though we have many theories. And one of the uh, prevailing theories is that it comes from the Hebrew, verb, uh, the Hebrew verb, chaya, which is to be. And the idea behind it is that though it's been changed a bit, uh, God is kind of connecting himself to this idea of presence. 
I'm not going to bore you with verb stems or anything like that, but, but what I want you to get is that he is connecting himself to this idea of being present. Like if I were to say to be, like to be with you. So when God says I am, he's saying like I am with you and I will be with you. God's name includes a promise of presence. So when he says I am, you can think of that as him saying I am powerful and I am mighty but I am also with you and I am also present God is both big and close in verse 16 says go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them the Lord the God of your fathers the God of Abraham the God of Isaac the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt so I said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all of my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. And God tells Moses, hey, go to Pharaoh. And maybe you kind of know how the story plays out. God, or Moses goes to Pharaoh and he's like, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh's like, no. And so God kind of sends these plagues after plague after plague, miracle after miracle. And Pharaoh kind of finally lets them go. And they cross the Red Sea and they're wandering in the desert for a while. But I want you to notice that God kind of flexes right here. Like God kind of calls his shot. He's like, I know that Pharaoh is not going to let you go, so I'm going to kind of uh, send these miracles and send these plagues. And the funny thing is, is that when we're dealing with a transcendent God, when he calls his shot, he always makes his shot because he's promise maker and he's promise keeper. Because he's big and he's powerful and he's holy. And you might kind of be wondering, if you're like me when we were reading this, that whole plunder the Egyptian thing kind of feels like it comes out of left field. You're like, what's that all about, dude? And uh, it's actually, I think, a really powerful statement of God's transcendence and imminence. So if you'll let me for a second take you back to Genesis 15, I think you'll understand why. God said to Abram, who will become Abraham, if you remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob thing, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And so from the very beginning, hundreds of years before, Moses was born hundreds of years before uh, the Israelites were ever even oppressed by the Egyptians, God is calling his shot again. God is saying, hey, this is how it's going to play out. They will be oppressed. They will be enslaved. But you know what? I will take them out of that land, and they will come out with many possessions. They will plunder the Egyptians. So why does God include this in Exodus 3? Because he's the God who keeps his word. God cares enough about you you to make promises and he's powerful enough to keep promises that's the transcendence and imminence of God and so we're coming at this 
from a culture that tries to define God on their own terms. Like, like if you think about it, we are coming at this from a culture that tries to define God, make their own image of God, and we have just let God define himself. And he's defined himself as big and powerful, as promise maker and promise keeper. Uh, the God who sees us in our affliction, yet the God who does something about it. The one who is above us and the one who is with us. And so what I want to do for just one second is kind of focus in and key in on this God with us thing. Because I think from, from this point on, this God with us is God's plan for humanity. From this point on, God is going to roll out this God with us plan. And no one really before the promises made to Moses was promised divine presence. Uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they had it. They were with God in the Garden, but they lost it. And then from then on out, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were not promised uh, this divine presence that, that Moses and that we are promised. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus kind of bursts onto the scene and he takes this spiritual idea of God being present and he makes it physical because Jesus was God with us. Jesus was God in the flesh on earth. He was God with us. And then, if, it's not even, if that's not cool enough, later in John, God, uh, Jesus had already been crucified and uh, he had risen again. And he's talking to the disciples, and they're like, dude, don't go. And he's like, it's better for me to go back to heaven because I'm sending you another. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And instead of me being physically here where like a couple of us could run out to Applebee's together, uh, the Holy Spirit is going to live inside the heart of every believer. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. And so this idea of presence is being blown up even more. And we're not promised some weird kind of force will be with you kind of presence. Like we are promised God with us right here, right now, living inside of you. And so as I begin to kind of wrap this up, I want to talk about how we respond to God's bigness and his closeness. Like how do we respond to this transcendence and this imminence? And I believe in response to God's bigness and closeness, we need to strive for holiness while resting in his grace. And I want you to notice that this is a response to both transcendence and imminence. This is a response to both bigness, holiness, the set-apartness, and God's closeness and with usness. If I can say that, with usness. Um, we strive for holiness because God is holy. Like uh, We set out to live a life that he calls us to live, not because we follow rules, but because uh, he has shown that he is big and he is powerful, so his ways are clearly the right ways. And this is what Paul calls in the New Testament sanctification. It's this process between uh, God and man of becoming more like God. As we kind of struggle, we start to leave our struggles behind and we grow toward God. We strive toward holiness. But don't miss this. We rest in his grace. Like, like it's not just about following rules. We get to rest in his grace. Because no one here is going to achieve perfection. I hate to break it to you, but you will mess up. You will fall short. Until heaven, none of us are going to reach perfection. And when we do mess up, we don't have to fear the transcendent, uh, powerful, holy God. 
We get to rest in the grace that Jesus paid for on the cross. That when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the ransom. He wrote the ransom check for you and me. He took the the punishment that we deserve for our sin and he put it on himself so that we don't fear punishment because the punishment has already been put on him. Instead, we rest in his grace. And I think uh, all around the American church, people are getting this wrong. Like all around North America, we are hyper-focusing on one aspect and not the other. Like uh, if we hyper-focus on striving for holiness, uh, this will quickly turn into legalism. Uh, Think with me, if we hyper-focus on, man, I got to earn my keep. I got to keep these rules. I got to check off these boxes on a list. Man, I need to earn my love. If God wants to love me, I got to earn it. If I'm going to get to heaven, I got to earn it. And that is anti-Christian, that is anti-gospel, that is anti-Bible. Like, that is not what God reveals about himself, that is not what Jesus says in the New Testament. That, that we were bought with a price, that it's not about what you can do, but it was about what was already done for you. If we start to hyper-focus on striving for holiness, we will quickly fall into a false gospel of legalism. And then there's the flip side. And I don't think this is talked about really either. And if we hyper-focus on grace, if we become these people that, that, that are just hyper-focused on, oh, we just rest in his grace, uh, man, there is no more reverence for God. There is no more respect for God. We kind of become like the guy who's wearing the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Like, like there is just no respect. There's no reverence. He's not your father. He's just a buddy, kind of like what I was saying before. And, man, there is no conviction over sin. We just keep sinning, and maybe you've had this thought, like, man, I'll just keep sinning because God's going to forgive me anyway, and I'm going to go to heaven, so why try? Like, why do anything? I'll just keep doing whatever I want to do, and that is anti-biblical. That is anti-gospel. Paul outright condemns this in the book of Romans. And man, we need to, we need to orient ourselves in that middle. We need to orient ourselves around striving for holiness while resting in his grace. And if you are someone that you feel like you kind of have that bent in you toward legalism, I know if I'm just speaking for myself, uh, when I'm not focused on the face of Jesus, when I am not uh, keyed in on this, man, there is just an ease in me to kind of lean on that legalism to try and earn my keep, to try and follow rules. And man, maybe what you need to do is just memorize some scripture about grace. Like maybe you need to kind of key in on some passages that are about how God loved you even though you didn't deserve it. To kind of pull you out of that legalism because you will never earn your keep. And if you kind of lean toward that grace side, if you feel like that's you where you kind of have that ease of going toward that, maybe you need to find someone who will keep you accountable. Maybe you need to find an accountability partner who will just walk alongside you and say, hey man, how's that sin struggle that you're dealing with? Or how's this struggle? How is your time in the word? How is your time in prayer? Who will kind of walk with you around that? But I really think that we need to refocus around striving for holiness while resting in his grace. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm really glad that you came out because, like we said, I'm pretty sure you had some preconceived notions and you just heard God define himself. And I hope that for the last half hour you kind of put those preconceived notions to the side and you heard out what God had to say. And maybe you always thought in your head that God was this like mean, rules-based God who's just judging people. But in reality, yes, he is powerful and he is holy, but he is also close and there is so much grace. And uh, I just want you to hear today that there was God with us. Jesus, when he was on earth, he was God with us and he paid the price 
for our sins on the cross. And that when he rose again, he defeated the grave once and for all. He said, the grave has no hold on me like we just sung earlier. And he has given us grace because it's not about following rules anymore because Jesus took the punishment for when we break those rules. And so we can rest in his grace because the punishment was put on him. So if you want to put your trust in Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. Uh, but guys, we need to stop defining God on our own terms. We need to let him define himself, and we need to strive for holiness while resting in his grace. You guys can pray with me. God, thank you that you are both transcendent and imminent, that you are both big and holy. Thank you, God, that, that we can strive for holiness while resting in his grace. Help us, God, to not lose uh, sight of this, to not uh, hyper-focus on one and fall into legalism or hyper-focus on the other and fall into this kind of uh, do-whatever-I-want theology. Lord God, help us to know that we don't have to fear the punishment anymore because you have died for us. If you want to put your trust in Jesus today, you can pray something uh, just like this. Uh, God, Jesus, I believe that you died to pay the ransom for my sins. I believe that it, the punishment is not on me anymore, that you took the punishment on my behalf, that there is grace for me now. God, help me to live my life differently. Would you come into my heart today? I want to know the grace that you offer, Jesus. Uh, just a second, I want to just know if you prayed that this morning, I'm not going to make you do anything, but I would just love for you to look at me so I can be praying for you this week. Did anybody pray that this morning? Awesome. Awesome to be praying for you this morning, this week. God, help us to strive for holiness as we rest in your grace, Jesus. Thank you. We love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.